Hello and welcome everybody to this week's edition of Truth to Power here on your community radio station. We are WFMPLP Louisville broadcasting from the top of the Hayburn Building at 106.5 FM and live streaming to the world at forwardradio.org. We'd love for you to go there right now to become a part of this community radio station, either behind the microphones or behind the scenes as a volunteer if you click on participate or sustain us on the air with your contributions. This is all listeners sponsored. That's how we make this thing happen every day of the year is your chipping in 20 bucks sponsors an entire day's broadcast here at Forward Radio. So go to forwardradio.org and become a part of this radio magic today. Uh, I'm the host of Sustainability Now, Justin Mogg, but what we do right here on Truth to Power is we gather folks from around the community to talk about important issues of the day. And I'm excited to get Hart Hagen back in the studio with me from uh, the Climate Report and Let's Talk, uh, as well as Jake Bush from DSA Louisville. They're going to be talking with us in a second but I want to start with a clip because today's topic is Fred Hampton. We're going to talk about perhaps the most important civil rights activist you've never heard of. Maybe you have heard of him. Maybe we're going to dive more into him today. But I wanted to start with just a little clip of Fred in his own words. This is from the 1969 documentary, The Murder of Fred Hampton. I'm the deputy chairman of the state of Illinois, Black Panther Party, Fred Hampton. And uh, a lot of people don't understand the Black Panther Party's our relationship with white mother country radicals, a lot of people don't even understand that word that they're refusing a lot. But what we're saying is that there are white people in the mother country that are for the same type of thing that we are for stimulating revolution in the, in the mother country. And we said that we will work with anybody and form coalition with anybody that has revolution on their mind. We're not a racist organization because we understand that racism is an excuse used for capitalism. And we know that racism is just is, is a byproduct of capitalism. Everything would be all right if everything was put back in the hands of the people. And we're going to have to put it back in the hands of the people. That's a clip of Fred Hampton on revolution and racism and the links to capitalism. And that's what I'm excited to talk today with Jake Bush from DSA Louisville about. Hey, Jake, how are you doing today? I'm great. I feel like I could, like, punch the moon every time I hear Fred Hampton. <laughs> I mean, like, we always talk about, like, I always talk about his impact. And I think that you have to note his incredible oratory skills. I mean, just that little clip, I'm just sitting here, like you saw me, I look a prize fighter, just like, just, just getting ready. <laughs> so I'm great. Yeah, exactly. I'm so excited to have you here. And hey, Hart, how are you doing? Hey, Justin, how are you? Great. So Fred Hampton is the threat of a good example. You know, he was threat. he threat. he was murdered because he threatened the establishment because he was a good example. Don't get me started. Well, let's let's get started with a little okay. who was Fred Hampton. He was a Black Panther Party leader, uh, a revolutionary socialist uh, in Chicago, uh, one of the great 1960s uh, advocates and, as you heard, orators, uh, and murdered by the FBI in Chicago at age 21. Murdered in a way that was quite premeditated. Yeah. Tell us more of what you know about it. Um, well, uh, okay. So I first heard the name Fred Hampton from Noam Chomsky. Yeah. Uh, and which was only a couple of years ago when I first started really, uh, understanding how the world really works. Mm -hmm. And then I, I knew precious little about him until I read a, a book called the assassination of Fred Hampton, which was written by Jeffrey Haas, who was, who is still living and was Fred Hampton's attorney in Chicago, they had a, a law office called PLO, 
the People's Legal Organization, People's Law Office. Uh, so, uh, and then I, so I read that book and I started to understand like who Fred Hampton was. I understood that, that he was uh, killed when he was only 21 years old. He was very talented, very well liked. In my opinion, he could have been the heir. He was the heir apparent to the, uh, to the mantle of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Right. Yeah. Very so, much in those shoes, right? In that, in that style. Right. And he was a threat to the FBI. They, they, we, we know now that the FBI, uh, you know, plotted the murder of Fred Hampton and the Chicago police and even the prosecutor, like the prosecutor was named was, was Hanrahan. Uh, he, and he orchestrated the raid that ended up in the death of Fred Hampton. Right. So we were going to talk about we were going to talk about this in three stages uh, and possibly in three different different episodes. But the three stages are number one, the life and times of Fred Hampton. Who was he? What was the context of his life and his ministry, if you will? Uh, and his and number two, the circumstances surrounding his death and number three, the aftermath. Uh, so the way. Jeffrey Haas writes his book is to tell the story from his own perspective, which is the legal cases that occurred afterwards. The people who were in the room, in the house when the police raided it, were ended up being charged with crimes mm. as if they were the criminals here. Mm. So there was at least two criminal trials and then there was a civil trial. And spoiler alert, I think it's important to know that from the outset that this resulted in $1.85 million being awarded to the plaintiffs, wow. which included the family of Fred Hampton. It included, there were something like eight people in the house when he was murdered. And so those people suffered injuries mm. and the family, so there were two people who died, uh, Fred Hampton and uh, the other gentleman's name, Mark, uh, Mark Clark died uh, in the raid. And the reason they were awarded $1.85 million collectively, uh, all their families, is that the court determined that it was more likely than not that their civil rights had been violated. So um, the, it's not it's not like, I, you know, the word conspiracy theory gets on my last nerve because it's as if conspiracy, you know, it's, it's this whole word that comes with baggage. We're talking about a story that has been established, not beyond a reasonable doubt, mm. but, you know, anybody looking at it is going to know that, it, that it, it's at least more likely than not that the FBI straight up committed murder. And one thing that's... Uh, you know, we, we hear about Watergate and Nixon being deposed basically because of Watergate, but this was a much worse crime on his watch, not to mention others, but it, you know, the Democratic and Republican establishment taken together. I mean, Democrats aren't going to nail Nixon for this because, you know, they're. Well, it's worth noting that Hanrahan and Mayor Daley were also Democrats. Mm -hmm. Right. OK. OK. Good point. Good point. So, Jake, were you going to tell us about, like, you know, kick us off with the first big stage, the life and times? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I wanted to, to start very briefly 
you know, looking at the 1960s in a broader sort of economic and social standpoint, I mean, I don't want to belabor the point because I think that, you know, anybody listening is going to understand the 1960s was a land of contrasts. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was a time of, of mass unrest in a lot of ways. I mean, you had the Vietnam War, you had, of course, you know, the Cold War and everything else. I mean, we all know that. Um, but I wanted to sort of situate an understanding of the 1960s as sort of the high watermark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were talking before we began recording about how, you know, I think of Hunter Thompson's famous quote in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas about how, you know, you can look west and see the high watermark where the waters rose and then rolled back, right? Um, and I always wondered what that meant when I read that book. Um, and, and now that I'm older, I understand that he was talking about a whole lot of things happening at once. Uh, and he was also talking about maybe whether he knew it or not, that the 1960s, I think we have to understand, was the high watermark for the United States of America as a nation state, as a cohesive unit, having almost unquestioned control of the world market, right? This was where we were producing stuff. We always talk about the good old days when we had the <laughs> union manufacturing jobs and all this stuff. We were making stuff in this country. So this was when America was great? Is that... <laughs> 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 I'm not going to touch that. You know, Justin, you're not going to bait me into that. Um, <laughs> but that was the that was the moment where, where the United States really had control over the markets. And I think after the 1960s, and I think beginning in like 68, 69, somewhere around there, you started to see us shifting to a financial model, which put powers in multinational corporations that were based in the U.S., important distinction, but not an arm of the U.S., right? Um and I think that, you know, these these very educated radicals like uh, Fred Hampton, which is amazing to think he was 21 years old when he died. Oh, yeah. That's just right. yeah, my mind. only 21. 21. And yet I think that he was educated enough and had his finger on the pulse enough to understand changes are coming, mm. whether we want them to or not, whether they're on our terms or not. Right. Well, well I think that's because he was part of a movement. Right, he was. If he, if and it was just a twenty one year old Fred Hampton hanging out on the internet like you would today, right? <laughs> Maybe well, it a, wouldn't be the same. But this is and, a man who is deeply invested in a movement, an organized movement of people seeking radical revolutionary change, like is think, happening today, <laughs> which makes right, me excited. It, that's that is the relevance uh, of tying between the late sixties and, yeah. and Hampton himself and today, where you saw. At, at age 17, he's already involved in the youth wing of the right. NAACP uh, in the, on the outskirts of Chicago, in the suburbs of Chicago, in Maywood is where he lived. Uh, 17 years old, he organized 500 kids, right? Right. Try to get 500 kids on the same page for anything. You know what I mean? <laughs> Much less when you are a kid. Yeah. Um, but he, he did it. He did 500 it. kids in a district that included like 27,000 people. So a total of 27,000 people. Wow. You get 500 kids together and organize them. Wow. Yeah, exactly. So he had his finger on the pulse. He was involved. And I think that he understood, like a lot of radicals at the time understood, and I think a lot of radicals now understand, changes are on the way. They're happening right in front of our face. You cannot stop it. You know, it's societal evolution, economic evolution. These things happen whether you want them to or not. Mm. It's just a matter of whether or not you have any say in how they change. Mm. You know what I mean? Uh, and I think that we have to understand this if we're going to understand Hampton. We have to understand that the 1960s was a time where we were at the high radical groups. 
people understood that even people like Hampton who understood we're being oppressed, you know, we are at the bottom of the national barrel. I think he, he, he understood even in spite of that, that this is as high as it goes <laughs> unless we make some changes. You know what I mean? So he was involved with the NAACP, like I said, 500 people in the, this youth wing. He ended up moving to Chicago and he was a very gifted student, very gifted athlete, had like his whole life ahead of him, as they always say. Uh, it's funny, I actually read a Nation article from the, the Nation uh, a publication dated from 1976. And they identified him as a young man who was very, uh, um, it was very possible for him to enter a white society mm -hmm. if he wanted to, right? Star mm -hmm. athlete, star student, honor student, could have done anything pre-law. You know what I mean? Like this was a guy who, if he wanted to, he could have assimilated, but he didn't. He moved to Chicago. He got involved with the Black Panther Party. Um, and, and at this time, again, we have to understand there was a multi-party effort, mm -hmm. right? To break up these radical groups, you know? And when we say radical groups, that means the Black Panther Party. It also includes the Young Lords. Right. It also includes the Young Patriots. And it actually includes street gangs, you know? I know that I was, I'm a kid born in the nineties. Right. And so like, I grew up with all the, the talks of like, you know, street gangs as this sort of like almost feral animalistic kind of thing. Right. That's how I was taught, like what, what a street gang is, but people like Fred Hampton, people in the black Panther party, you know, I think it was Malcolm X who referred to street gangs as depoliticized street gangs or uh, street tribes is how he put it. Right these people who understood how to take care of each other and resist the police and resist the state, but they were doing it without a political message. Mm. Right. So at this time you had all of this, these people who knew how to organize on the street knew how to take care of each other, knew how to fight, honestly, I mean, that's important. Um, but they didn't have a political message. They weren't unified. Right. So one of the first things that you saw Fred Hampton do before, of course, his untimely murder, um, was try to unite these street gangs, right? And this is missed from his story. We don't talk about that as much. But they it, thought he was a, they thought the Black Panthers were another gang that wanted turf. And he said, I don't want your turf, man. Mm. If you want to join the Black Panthers, feel free, but I don't want, I'm not, I don't want the turf. And he had them uh, actually working to on some constructive and positive things in conjunction with the Black Panthers. Precisely. He, he, he reached out to these gangs and said, you know, the, the police violence is being perpetrated against you. So join me in opposing the police violence. Yeah, and he was he was radically anti-violent too, uh, non-violent. Um, I just want to read a quote from him that I found online. We've got to face the fact that some people say you fight fire best with fire, but we say you put fire out best with water. <laughs> we say <laughs> you don't fight racism with racism. We're going to fight racism with solidarity. We say you don't fight capitalism with black capitalism. You fight capitalism with socialism. And th those uh, those words have just been echoing in my mind ever since I read them, uh, because it's such a radical message that resonates so much with the street protests going on right now. It does. And, and I think that you see the legacy of that quote, which is something that I'm glad you read it because it's been rattling in my brain for years since I first heard it. Um, and and uh, I think you see it now. You see a lot of people who don't really want co-optation from, you know, nonprofit groups or, or these sort of make nice 
sort of like, well, let's all assimilate back into a good society. Yep. People don't want that yep. <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, and, and he didn't want that either. Can't we just return to normal? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And you see people, a lot of young people, a lot of radical people, and there are more every day rejecting that message. You know, it's hard to say that when we have Joe Biden uh, as a <laughs> candidate for president. But uh, you see my point, the people in the street, and there's more of them every day are, are the ones kind of rejecting that idea. And that, that is, to me, the legacy of what he put out there. Because uh, you, as you said, Justin, he was a, a pretty nonviolent. He wasn't opposed to self-defense, uh, as we make it into. Uh, but he didn't want necessarily like a militia, you know. Right. Um, and, and he actually, and this is very relevant to his death as well. Uh, you know, there were members of the Black Panther Party that he worked with directly who were very aggressive and were constantly saying we should be doing more violence. We need to be arming, you know, on mass. We need to start setting traps in our apartments and stuff for, for invaders yeah. and stuff. And he uh, intentionally, you know, rejected that. Like he, he knew right away what that was and knew on the danger of that. And he rejected it. He said, we're not doing that. We're not going that path, you know? Um, and this is why he was seen as such a threat. You know, it, and that is when you see it. And, and I've seen some some reports and stuff that said that he really popped up on the FBI's radar as a major, major threat. That's how they categorized him mm -hmm. um, when he started this, you know, nonviolent coalition building. Right. Mm -hmm. When he was mm -hmm. uniting street gangs, brokering peace treaties, when he was reaching out to the young lords, which was a Latino organization and the young patriots, which was a white organization. Right. Uh, so why would he threat. become a threat because of that? Because I think in those moments, I think that the powers that be, whether it be Hanrahan or you move up the ladder at J. Edgar Hoover, Richard Nixon, any any of these people, you know, they understood that a class based organization, right, that could put their guns down for a minute and get in a room and talk about who is our common opponent here? Mm. What are we fighting over? And why are we stuck fighting over just a piece of turf? Mm. I'm starting to sound like the opening uh, monologue from the warriors. If you guys have ever seen that movie, but I'm going to have to watch it again. I'm going to make <laughs> both of you watch that. movie's way older than me. Yes, anyway, <laughs> but you know, they stopped arguing over these pieces of turf okay. and they started arguing over, Who's making us fight over these pieces of turf? Who's oh making us this Oh my God, that's desperate? great. That is so awesome. That is so awesome. And that's the question. And yeah, that is what right. Fred was trying to do. You know, he was trying to do this with his political education. He was starting political education classes in Chicago free for children. No Patreon, no uh, subscriber list, nothing like right. that. It's just, you know, come as you are. Uh, as well as doing uh, free, free breakfast free programs. Breakfast, yeah. You know, these are moments where the people said, we don't need you talking to the state. We need us. Mm -hmm. We need each other, mm -hmm. right? Whether you're white, whatever color you might be, right? And he has said as much, you know, he gave a speech after Handrahan targeted him the first time. And he said, you know, what they have us doing right now is saying, well, I'm black and I hate brown people. I'm brown, I hate yellow people. I'm yellow, I hate white people. I'm white, I hate black people. And you go in this cycle, right? And he said that that's not the enemy, right? The enemy is above that. Um, and that, that is what made him a threat. Our topic today here on Truth to Power on Forward Radio is Fred Hampton. We're taking a look back at history 
to use it to inform our movement today, because Fred Hampton uh, really should inform, his story really should inform our way going forward. And, and we have so many lessons to learn from the short life of this man who was a leader in the Black Panther Party and was killed by police in Chicago in 1969 at the tender age of 21. Uh, I'm speaking, I'm Justin Mogg. I'm speaking today with uh, Jake Bush from uh, Democratic Socialists of America, Louisville chapter, and Hart Hagen, host of the Climate Report and let's talk. And uh, I really I really want to, if we could focus a little bit on, on the work of coalition building uh, within Fred's life. Um, you know, it, it wasn't just uh, that he was trying to, you know, be nonviolent and, and bring these street gangs together, uh, but he really was the one who founded this whole idea of the Rainbow Coalition, right? Hmm. And and that was a uniting of several different, uh, you know, we're talking about SDS, Students for Democratic Society, uh, AIM, uh, the the Brown Berets, you know, all these different groups that were working towards common vision. And I see that today in in, in our movement today as well. Uh, and 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 if we could build a rainbow coalition for today, I think we'd have we'd have a lot more strength as a people. What do you all think about that? Well, I'm on board with that. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> um, and well, I, okay, so Martin Luther King talked about how the people at the very top divide black and white people from one another. Mm -hmm. I don't know what else to say about that, except that more and more I see that. And, you know, I see when I encounter hate speech and when I can encounter hateful attitudes, um, it's easy to respond with the same kind of strident attitude. And I'm not beyond that, right. but I'm saying those hateful attitudes are cultivated over the course of time. They're intentionally They're cultivated stated. by yeah. like black exploitation comedy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I used to be a, an Eddie Murphy fan and I realize now that a lot of his stuff is, is punching down mm. a mm. lot of the, uh, a lot of the fictional, like the, the TV and movies and comedy is making uh, some lowly person look ridiculous mm. instead of punching up and making the powers that be look ridiculous. So we have this rich cultural vocabulary of things that make average people look silly and ridiculous. And that's the type of that. That's the, the very rich dividing us from one another. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. So, like, I feel like my generation's Eddie Murphy was Dave Chappelle, you know. Uh -huh, and, yeah. uh, you know, when he left his his show on Comedy Central, pretty successful show, well, you know, well acclaimed, a show that I'd still find absolutely hilarious, honestly. But, you know, he left it after only two seasons. And he said that the reason why was because he's like, I started really looking at the audience and thinking, what are they really laughing at? <laughs> what what is making them laugh because i don't wow. think that they're laughing for the reasons i'm laughing wow. you know what i mean yeah. right um and i think that's a good point that you see it across all media you see it across the news comedy anything you know what i mean these sort of divisive things you know po poking fun at people rather than you know sort of sharing a laugh uh which is a very different thing um, you know, the, the people at the very top can be, uh, I mean, they, they do ridiculous things. They say ridiculous things. It wouldn't be, there's a lot of material there, but if you want to get funded, it's a whole uh, different thing. But let me read this speech, uh, part of a speech from Fred Hampton 
this was delivered like within a year before he died. He said, we ain't going to, okay, you tell me what you think of any of this, <laughs> the violence or calling cops pigs. I mean, let's talk. Um, we, we ain't going to fight no reactionary pigs who run up and down the street being reactionary. We're going to organize and dedicate ourselves to revolutionary political power and teach ourselves the specific needs of resisting the power structure, mm. arm ourselves, and we're going to fight reactionary pigs with international proletarian revolution. Wow. That's what it has to be. The people have, have, the have to have the power. It belongs to the people. We have to understand very clearly that there's a man in our community called a capitalist. Sometimes he's black and sometimes he's white. But that man has to be driven out of our community. Anyone who, who comes into the community to make a profit off the people by exploiting them can be defined as a capitalist. Let me just stop right there. I used to love Michael Jordan, and as an athlete, he was wonderful. Damn, I'm wanting, I'm wanting to cuss, but we're on the air. Uh, I mean, he's made, he, he's worth $2 billion now, much of it from endorsement of Nike. Nike, uh, you know, uses slave labor overseas and, and charges like, you know, over $100 for a pair of shoes that are promoted by famous athletes uh, and often sold to ghetto kids. That's exploitation. Republicans buy sneakers, too. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so it's equal opportunity exploitation. That's you his famous be, quote. Can't make him mad. Oh, oh, he said that. You can't, you can't. Hey, well, that's what he said. You can't make him mad. They buy sneakers too, right? Right, right. So he goes on to say, and we don't care how many programs they have, how long a dashiki they have. Dashiki is an African garb. How long a dashiki they have because political power does not flow from the sleeve of a dashiki political power flows from the barrel of a gun it flows from the barrel of a gun wow i i have a i have a i have a thought here okay right? so that that line that you yeah. ended with or right. he ended with yeah you know, um that's mal that's chairman mm, mal yeah, yeah that's that's yeah. directly from chairman mal mm -hmm. and and it's important to note that because the Black Panther Party, and, and if you want to talk about the context, the life and times, you know, like where were they situated in, in terms of power and then the context of the history here? Um, the Black Panther Party was specifically organized, organized around Maoist tendencies, right? And I know that's scary, and I understand I'm not going to sit here and, and apologize for Mao's regime in China. I have no interest in having that argument at all jake there are cartoon heroes and there are cartoon villains you have to be one or the other <laughs> one there of them wears no a white hat right i get american way right um yeah i don't even want to go there but what i will say is that the reason everybody why... is either good or bad <laughs> you can't be both right it's two different cups you're in one or the other but you know, it's important to note that because it's important to recognize that the Black Panther Party and, and Fred Hampton himself understood black people as a colonized people yes. within the yeah. nation of their colonizer, right? It's sort of a unique situation that is very similar to the Chinese people who engaged in a revolution, right, under, under Chairman Mao. You know, it's people who understood we are a people 
who live in the same nation as our colonizer, and yet we are treated as a colony. Our, our, uh, our homes are treated as ghettos, right, where we are forced into, right? I mean, that's where the term comes from. It's a place where you, you put an oppressed people intentionally to ostracize them from the rest of society. That's why they call it a ghetto. You know what I mean? And so Hampton understood that you must understand not in terms of, you know, black nationalism in the sense that it's black people only, nobody else, no solidarity, but black nationalism in the sense of self-determination. Right. And that's a very important distinction that I feel like gets missed a lot because he explicitly says, I, you know, he says, and he uses the term racist, which I wouldn't call a black nationalist necessarily racist because that gets into question of power and all these other very messy things. But, you know, he's saying, I don't fight racism with racism. I fight it with solidarity, as, as you all said. And what he means is it's going to take the unification of people who are oppressed across this entire world mm. banding together, whether it's Asian Americans and black Americans, Palestinians, right? People in China, people in, you know, wherever across the world who are experiencing oppression coming together for their self-determination. That's what it's all about. And if you look at anything Hampton was talking about, if you look at any of the Black Panther Party's 10 points, the constant is self-determination for their community. And, and that, that colonization exists today, obviously, for black and brown people, but for white working class people as well. You could easily call Appalachia colonized, right? Colonized yeah. by the fossil fuel industry, for instance, and our high river valley continues to be colonized in that way. I think so. And so, uh, I, this is where I always get a little stuck about well, do we need black self de determination or do we need people's self determination, right? And I think you need, I think there's respect for both positions. I, I, I don't have one or the other, but uh, that's that combining that critique about um, lack of self determination with the, the malice sort of class and economic critique, I think is what made the Panther Party such a powerful movement of, of its time and, and why it was so frightening to the powers that be and, and and that's why this whole COINTELPRO program was set up to identify and infiltrate and eliminate uh, disrupt leadership and, and it and eventually ended in, in Fred Hampton's death in 1969 uh, I, we had a great outline for how this conversation was going to go and I love how we've just gone off in tentacles so I don't know if we want to re return to that to that outline heart we're, we're anarchists. Yeah. We, uh... <laughs> it's anarchist radio here on 106.5. Right. You're calling a red an anarchist right now, and I don't know how to respond to it. I mean, it's okay. fine. Solidarity. It's fine. I'm wearing the shirt, man. I'm wearing the shirt. Do but we... no, I, if I may yeah. respond to that briefly, um, just a quick snippet from a speech that, that uh, Hart sent over to me to look over before this, actually. The very first line. Very first line of the speech, 1969, uh, power anywhere where there's people. I think that would be his response to what you were saying, Justin, of yeah. this kind of sticky situation. And it is a sticky situation. You know, when you talk about self-determination of black people, self-determination of Appalachian white people, right. let's say, you know, um, and he's saying power anywhere where there is people, right? That the, the power needs to be in the people's hands. And he explicitly says, and he, I don't know. He uses a term that I don't really feel comfortable using for black people. Uh, he says, you know, 
I don't want imperialist black people, right? That was another part of, of one of his quotes where he was saying, you know, we talk about rising up of black people. He's like, well, I don't want imperialist black people. That's not. Yeah. That's if you not want to look at colonialization, there's always a crony within the country. You know, there, yeah. if it's Latin America, if it's Africa, if it's the Middle East, no matter where it is, you go into the country and you buy somebody. That's modern colonialism, whereas the, you know, the British conquering India or parts of Africa would just go in and, and establish a colonial government. We don't do it that way. We just we pay off a crony to oppress the, the, the native people. So there's always it's like uh Cornell West was saying what we've got now is a more colorful power structure. <laughs> You've got people of color and women sprinkled within the power structure, but it's the same power structure. Yeah. And, and that's why his calls for revolution are so poignant to me. Because when he's talking about revolution, we always think, oh, it's a big, scary word. It's a big, scary thing. And sure, I mean, you know, things have to change. That's what the word means. But it has to change. You see what I'm saying? I know that this is a, another fine distinction here, but what he's saying is the very way that the system works has to change for it to actually be a revolutionary change, right? It can't be, well, we swapped the person in charge out. You know what I mean? It has to fundamentally change the relationship of working people to the process of production and accumulation for it to count, you know? Um, and in that case, you know, I, I see... I see what he's saying here as a major threat because if people were able to have followed Hampton more closely, and of course he was taken from us, um, but if his message had stuck around and he had been able to organize the way that he looked like he was poised to do, perhaps we would have seen that take hold and we would have seen people less placated, right, by, by the, the change, which is we keep the system functionally the same it's just we sort of swap out people and make it more representative which is something that he absolutely was not in favor of some of our listeners are thirsty for for violence so we should talk, we should talk about the uh, circumstances are they? surrounding <laughs> oh my god <laughs> it's getting intense that's my uh, that's my awkward segue into uh, <laughs> blood on the radio. Of, yeah, right. <laughs> if it bleeds, it leads here on Forward Radio. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's talk about yeah. the circumstances uh, that surrounded Fred's death. Uh, this was December third of nineteen sixty nine. Right? Who wants right. to take the lead on that one? Okay. Uh, so on December 3rd. So prior to this, Hanrahan is the prosecutor who, who basically made this happen. Prior to this, you have J. Edgar Hoover, who's the head of the FBI, orchestrating all this. This has been revealed in the memos. So keep in mind that this is orchestrated. This is not something just a, a, a raid gone bad or any the cops had no legitimate reason to be there. But the circumstances surrounding Fred's death, on December 3rd, Fred taught at a church and, and some Panther members spent the night at his apartment, which was normal. Uh, the people in the apartment that spent the night with him included Deborah Johnson, his fiancee, who was nine months pregnant with their son, uh, and also Blair Anderson, James Grady, Ronald Doc Satchel, Harold Bell, Verlina Brewer, 
Lewis Trulock, Brenda Harris, and Mark Clark. So there's about nine or 10 people total in this apartment. I'm not sure if the cops knew or understood that, but it was certainly anyway. Uh, so O'Neill is uh, a person who had been a spy. He was, he was an infiltrator who worked with the FBI. So O'Neill prepared the dinner and drugged Fred Hampton. The drug was Secanol or Secobarbital. It's a, uh, it's a, a sedative that, that, you know, drug, that they wanted to drug him so that he wouldn't resist. They just wanted him to be vulnerable for the murder. So Hampton fell asleep, you know, after being drugged, Hampton fell asleep mid-sentence talking to his mother on the phone. Uh, and, you know, Fred Hampton didn't use drugs or drink alcohol, so uh, it would have been uh, very unusual and unexpected for him to in ingest this himself. And I think O'Neill has admitted to all this after years and years. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he hadn't even admitted to it as of the civil trial a few years later, but uh, so the, here's the armed raid. They said arms raid. I'm not sure if that's arms raid or armed raid. If it's arms raid, that means they're looking for arms. So the cops are supposedly looking for illegal weapons. Mm. So at 4 a.m., the heavily armed police team arrived at the site, divided into two teams, eight for the front of the building and six for the rear. At 4.45 a.m., they stormed into the apartment. Mark Clark, sitting in the front room of the apartment with a shotgun in his lap, was on security duty. So they were defending themselves against the police, and now you know why. They knew, yeah. They, they, they yeah. knew this was coming. Yeah. But at the end of the day, only one shot was fired in the other direction. The, you know, there were like 50 shots shot inward and only one shot out, and that was by accident. The police immediately shot him, killing him instantly. That's Mark Clark. An alternative account says that Clark answered the door and police immediately shot him. Either way, Clark's gun discharged once into the ceiling. The single round was fired when he suffered a reflexive death convulsion after being shot. This was the only shot fired by the Panthers. So Hampton, drugged by barbiturates, was sleeping on a mattress in the bedroom with his fiancée, Deborah Johnson, who was nine months pregnant with their child. Wow. She was forcibly removed from the room by police. We'll see if it was today and this was Brianna Taylor, they'd just shoot her. Yeah, they just shoot her too. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's progress. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> oh, wow. Uh, mm. Then uh, the raiding team, uh, wait, yeah, the raiding team fired at the head of the south bedroom. Hampton was wounded in the shoulder by the shooting. Fellow Black Panther Harold Bell said that he heard the following exchange. This is the cops talking. That's Fred Hampton. Is he dead? Bring him out. He is barely alive. He'll make it. Now, usually he'll make it is good news, but then, but in this case, he'll make it means finish him off. Wow. So the injured Panthers said they heard two shots. So this is the, the people that were there. One was killed instantly. The rest were gathered into the, the living room. Uh, and only Fred was left in the back room and he was sedated. So the injured Panther Panthers said they heard two shots. According to Hampton's supporters, the shots were fired point blank at Hampton's head. According to Deborah Johnson, an officer then said he's good and dead now. Wow. 
Hampton's body was dragged into the doorway of the bedroom and left in a pool of blood. So that is, those are the circumstances around. So when I first heard about this from Noam Chomsky, uh, well, Chomsky just, he's a, he's an animal when it comes to reading the original documents. And I thought you had, you had to be somebody with his uh, zeal and intellect to dig behind the scenes to find out what really happens. But any idiot can look at If these facts are remotely true, and all of this came out during the trials. There was a criminal trial of the, the people that were herded into the room. They were charged with crimes and they had to defend themselves. They had to pay it. They, they at first were responsible for $100,000 cash bail. Wow. Uh, and then so that those charges were eventually they were eventually acquitted on those charges. The police and the prosecutor were ultimately charged in a, in a criminal trial. The, that was an uphill battle and they ended up being acquitted as well. But then the civil trial, so when you get to, so crimes have to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt, but a civil case like suing for civil rights violations, it's preponderance of the evidence. It's more likely and not that this happened and that the government should pay this money. So the, the governments, the FBI and the government of Chicago and the government of Cook County ended up paying $1.85 million to these people. Uh, and it, that, uh, that was the case, even though the, the judge, there's a judge Perry over the civil trial who could not have been more biased and more he was obstructing the, the the case every step of the way he could not have been more hostile to the plaintiffs than he was even but so it uh, but when it went to appeal uh the appeals court ended up overturning the trial either that or it went back to a new trial i, I forget which but in either case the the court system as biased as it was against Fred Hampton and his estate and his and, and the other Black Panthers ended up awarding and the FBI, you know, ended up having to pay a third of that one point eight five million dollars. And when you dig into the de details, you end up knowing why. I mean, the FBI had a there was a document in their files that was basically one of these people, O'Neill, William O'Neill, had done a diagram of the bedroom. Wow. And then at the time of this incident, that we didn't know anything about COINTELPRO, but COINTELPRO became a public knowledge, uh, a matter of public knowledge after this. So, 1971. Okay. Yeah. I was I was hoping you were going to bring that up because because that was what I was going to go in with. <laughs> well, to the uninitiated, what's COINTELPRO? Well, you know, so 1971, there was a break in in an FBI field office, uh, and one of the documents that was stolen and released was proof that COINTELPRO uh, existed. Right now, COINTELPRO was a program uh, by the FBI. Uh, the the shorthand I use is that. Basically, they were doing what the CIA was doing to everybody else, yeah. but inside the United States, right? right. Uh, <laughs> so you, I know that's the shorthand, but that's that's honestly what Equal it was. Equal opportunity, happening. surveillance, and persecution. 
Exactly. Yeah, Thank it's the part. war at home, right? The, everything right. we we send abroad bounces back to to get us here. Uh, we we're not. The people are the enemy. Yeah, no. that's the that's the perspective of the ruling class. Uh, we're talking here on Truth to Power on Ford Radio about Fred Hampton and his legacy. Uh, amazing how how few people know about Fred Hampton and his legacy, uh, but also how much he was able to achieve before he was murdered by the FBI uh, at the age of twenty one, uh, and and. It, this this really resonates with the the situation today. I mean, we 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 haven't seen much progress since 1969. If we want to talk about uh, how much uh, resources um, your taxpayer dollars uh, go towards uh, violence abroad and at home, right? Um, and when we talk about this 1.85 million settlement, that's taxpayer dollars, right? <laughs> Right. It's you and me paying paying off for it's for either it. that or it's money they've earned dealing drugs. Yeah. Seriously. Um and and you know, that sort of brings us back to this this COINTELPRO thing where where the major thing was to infiltrate uh groups that were deemed to be dangerous, right, to the sanctity of America. Um and basically what the entire plan was was to infiltrate with their They're a threat to regular Americans, regular tax paying Americans. We all love that dog whistle. Um, but, you know, the main thing was to either secure informants or get agents to go undercover uh, to infiltrate these groups and not just tell the FBI and the police department about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, uh, you know, I think Jeffrey Haas, he gave an interview with uh, Democracy Now mm -hmm. some time ago. And he said, you know, I always thought of an informant as somebody who sits back in the back and they take notes and they you know, <laughs> listen. They don't say anything. They take notes and then they give them off to the FBI. He said, that's not really what was going on there. The people that the FBI were using in these programs were instigators. They were right. agitators. Right. And this is why Hampton uh, was was very smart to not listen to the most violent, the most irrational kind of people in his organization, because come to find out they were the very people who were working with the FBI. Uh, and this is a common tactic, even to this day, where, you know... So I'll when always... we're in a DSA meeting, the person screaming loudest for... I don't know, a strike. <laughs> yeah. Well, we need to go burn down this building or something. Like, ah, you're a cop. <laughs> right. Not that, that I've ever heard that in a DSA meeting. Whoever's listening to this have right, not heard right, that. Right. But <laughs> Not that we will admit. <laughs> but, you know, you actually see this now with uh, right-wing militias. Actually, yeah. this, is, this is still an issue uh, where the FBI, and I know that, you know, I'm not really friendly with right-wing militias, big shocker there. But um, I think it is worth noting that they still do this tactic where they will send people undercover and say, well, hey, man, why don't we blow up this mosque? Why don't we just uh, shoot up this mall or something like that? That guy is usually the FBI agent. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there was, a, there, were, there was an incident when the protests were just getting started. There was an incident where seven people were shot. I don't think anybody died in that, but the person just disappeared. It mm. had to be a professional. It couldn't have been, I mean, anyway, just yeah. saying. Yeah, I mean, it's worth speculating because, you know, again, if we're talking about the legacy of Fred Hampton, um, you know, we're talking about, again, the most violent people, the most violent-minded people in his organization were the people paid by the FBI. You know, we were talking, we we're talking about, you know, the production. And when it comes down to it, they're not going to be prosecuted. You know, exactly. they can do violent things and not get prosecuted for it because they're, you know, they, they, they said the 
the FBI and the CIA and uh, has got their backs. Absolutely. You know, and we're not just talking about this. We're talking about the production of propaganda um, where certain members would produce propaganda or uh, political cartoons or something like that. Uh, and then that would be disseminated and they would cause strife between these groups in the Rainbow Coalition. Like Justin, you were talking about how Hampton worked very hard to build this coalition. Uh, and one way the FBI would go about that is they would, you know, get in the ear of a, a member of the Black Panther Party or another organization and say, why don't you publish this here political cartoon, you know, and, and it would always paint a member of the SDS or SNCC or the Young Patriots or something in a negative light. And then that would cause sometimes violence, sometimes murderous conflicts mm. between those groups uh, because they would essentially be playing like the telephone game with the FBI at one end. You know, they what I mean? tried they, to do that here. They tried to, you know, create some enmity between Fred Hampton and somebody else to get that, but that didn't work. So they had to do it themselves. Precisely. And Precisely. you know, this this strategy by the authorities to infiltrate and to uh, to pr provoke violence. Um, I don't know if it's responsible for the Weather Underground, but it worked in the sense that the Weather Underground formed and really started doing its attacks uh, right after Fred Hampton's murder. And it was it was just a, a two days later on December 6th that members of the Weather Underground destroyed a number of police vehicles in a retaliatory bombing spree uh, on Halstead Street in Chicago. So this really kicked off that kind of crazy <laughs> period of, of the early 70s with the Weather Underground. And, and the bombings and and you know this is something i think a lot like since i've been involved in the protests here in louisville you know we've talked about i've been arrested whatever blah blah blah. but like the thing that i noticed just being on the ground and watched the way the police responded to these protests is they have it in their minds that the thing to do is take out the leader mm -hmm. right and this is just basic tactics any 10 year old who's played you know, some video game or something will tell you, yeah, you go after the, the toughest guy and then the rest scatter. Um, and that's precisely what happened here. You go after Hampton because he was the unifier. In street protests, you go after whoever's organizing the street protest. You don't even have to arrest them. You don't have to hurt them. You don't have to touch them. Just separate them from the rest of the people. Yeah. And then the people scatter. And a lot of the times they bring with themselves their own initiatives, their own agendas, their own thoughts, and they're not organized. You know what I mean? And so anybody listening to this who's not a cop, <laughs> um, you know, if you're listening to this at home, the thing to keep in mind is if you have leaders in your organization, do not let them get separated from the people hmm. because that is when things get unorganized. That what do you is mean when, separated? Whether it's arrest, whether it's death, whether it's being uh, just taken off of a platform where they can speak. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, at a protest, if you, whoever's got the megaphone, uh, who's leading the march, so to speak, um, once that megaphone's out of their hands, people are left rudderless. They're left leaderless. They're left adrift. Mm -hmm. um, and while I understand that spontaneous political action can be inspiring and moving and, mm -hmm. and can, can actually achieve real results, I'm not going to argue with that, um, spontaneous political action is also unorganized political action mm -hmm. most of the time. And, and that's why, our, you know, Justin, you were talking about the Weather Underground doing these attacks on police vehicles. I'm not going to get into the ethics of is this good or bad in a universal sense. 
Well, but was it productive? Violence favors the establishment. The establishment can respond with violence, right. and that legitimizes their- At a greater their, degree than you ever could. Yeah. The no, establishment no. has the uh, incentive to full, full, what am I trying to say? Foment. Foment, foment. They have the incentive to foment violence. The worst thing for them is for, for there to be unity without violence. Working class unity without violence is the worst thing for them. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean that people can't defend themselves. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, right. Fred Hampton himself, you know, one of the things that he and the Black Panther Party talked a lot about was self-defense, because that's a part of self-determination that, you know, if you're infringing upon me, I should have a right to, to push you back a little bit. But that's a very different thing from an offensive violence. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because as, as you were saying, Hart, that's always going to favor the powers that be. They can respond with legitimate violence in far greater capacity than any small scale militia, especially in this day and age with the technology we have, you know, they can do far more than you could dream of, <laughs> you know, uh, and it never make the news. Even. Yeah. Well, let's look at Black Lives Matter. So this is something that I have heard and it is consistent with what I see. And that is uh, Black Lives Matter is kind of prevented from being all that organized. Because if there are leaders, then those leaders can be given nine kinds of hell by the system. You know, the leaders can be charged with crimes, for one thing. Not hard to charge a pure person of color with a crime. And their confinement has nothing to do with justice. So yeah. the Black Lives Matter is prevented from being very well, or even though they are, but they they can't do as much because of the way the system is always putting the heat on leaders. It, that's something I think about a lot. You know, I, I think about that a lot in this this sort of discussion of spontaneity and, and leadership and who should be in charge and blah, blah, blah. We, there's all sorts of like, you know, within the group sort of discussions and not just Black Lives Matter, which, of course, I'm not as inside of. Right. I'm very white. Um, I don't need to be. But my point is, is that I think about this a lot. And, and I think that, you know, I think that the model of the 60s is not a model that can be replicated. Mm -hmm. um, just 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 on what is possible. You know what I mean? Uh, I think that we are in a day and age where media moves very fast. Information moves very fast. Um, I think people now want more transparency. Uh, and people want more sense, more of a sense of, you know, spontaneity. And I, and I don't see the same kind of leadership model coming about today, partially for the reasons you were saying, Hart. You know, they've sort of, the, the system has sort of already, it's almost like antibodies, right? Like they've adjusted, they've built up the sort of defense to that model. Mm -hmm. uh, so some other new model is going to have to come about. And that's why I get so frustrated talking to some people on the left who are like, well, what we need to do, and they, they have their little books and their notebooks and chart, like we need to go back to this and that and look at this model. This this worked in this particular revolution in 18, whatever. And I'm like, <laughs> you don't understand history, okay? What happened happened, and it's over. <laughs> like you're feeling the effects like history lives history right. is a living thing yes that's mm -hmm. true but but it happened then we are no longer in that time with the particular historical and social and economic context we're in a new one we have to have a model that reflects our current context of history and social 
you know, relations in the, in the economy of the time. You know what I mean? And, and frankly, I don't think that in this moment we'll ever be able to understand exactly what that paradigm is or what's, what's desirable. I think that's something 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now we'll look back and be able to make an assessment of it. Unfortunately, that's just the way I think history works. But that's a great point, Hart. You know, I, I, I don't think there's any clear answer is what I'm trying to say. You know, I don't think we could have that answer right now. Thank you. Let me, uh, like the Black Panthers had 10 points and I, want, I don't want to read all of them, uh, but I want to read the first few and see what we think. So it's, a, it's what we want now. Number one, we want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our black community. We want full employment for our people. We want an end to the robbery by capitalists of our black and oppressed communities. We want decent housing fit for the shelter of human beings. We want education for our people that exposes the true nature of this American society. We want education that teaches us our true history and our role in the present day society. So that, num that number five is like, you know, uh, my personal passion is for people to understand the reality, They'll separate the rhetoric from the reality. What, what I learned, and I only, you know, I'm 57 years old, it's only about like two, two and a half years ago that I started to learn what utter hogwash the history I have learned mm. is. And, I, you know, knowledge of the problem is half the solution. Awareness of the problem is half the solution. And so we're, you know, today we're doing something. We are, you know, understanding I like what it says, people to understand the true nature of this decadent American society, the true nature of our society, how the police uh, and the FBI and the CIA can plan to murder somebody and they do it and they get way, away with it. And 50 years later, hardly anybody knows about this. And unfortunately, we're all out of time, but that's a really good point to end on, Hart. I'm glad, I'm glad you shared that. Uh, my name is Justin Mogg, host of Sustainability Now. I want to thank Jake Bush from DSA Louisville for joining us today for this great conversation about Fred Hampton. And DSA Louisville is continuing their day and night schools. I know there's a Q&A coming up on August 27th. Uh, do you happen to know about that, Jake, with uh, Dustin and Jared? Yeah, yeah. Um, Dustin and Jared, they're, they're very long time DSA organizers. Uh, they've definitely been around the block uh, and they are talking about the party surrogate model. So we're going to talk about in the wake of the Bernie Sanders campaign, what does a socialist involvement with electoral campaigns look like? So I think that's a big thing. Everybody try to tune Green in. Party. If you can. <coughs> Green party. <laughs> Get at us on social media. Uh, and, and we will have that for everybody. Everybody's free to join. So. Yeah. Find that uh, DSA Louisville.org, August 27th at 6 PM and Hart Hagen, host of uh, the climate report and let's talk anything you want to promote Hart. Well, I'm talking this week about the uh, the the wisdom of life consists in the elimination of non-essentials. Uh, like, what can we get rid of? Like, 90% of cars, 90% of air travel, 90% of de defense. Don't get me started. Great, sounds good. So, stay tuned for that on Forward Radio, and uh, we'll be back in your ears again in one week's time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys.